Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. So uh, that was family fun night in case you missed it Friday. We didn't want you to miss out on the action. Uh, at last count, I think we had somewhere around 2,500 water balloons. Uh, and I know that because I counted the welts on my body. So there may have been more than that, I'm not quite sure. Uh, needless to say, uh, we had a little bit of fun. Uh, so CCLC families, porch families, about 120 people uh, showed up. We also had a dunk tank, as you saw there, which if you've never had the experience of being dunked in a dunk tank, it is just a small window into what heaven is going to be like, I think. Um, it's just warm, you know what I mean? Like, it's like you're taking a bubble bath, and I don't know if you could tell, but I'm about six foot one, and uh, when you fall off that lever, the amount of water between me and the ground isn't enough to cushion much. So every single time you're hitting, and, uh, but the kids, as you can tell, had a wonderful time. And uh, Trista, our children's ministry director, Greg, our worship pastor, were both in the dunk tank, and uh, neither of them are here this morning. So apparently if you got the dunk tank, you got to, oh, I haven't seen you yet. I didn't know if you were here. Hey, Trista's here, good. So it's just Greg who didn't show up. No. Uh, anyway, I was, that you just ruined my joke, so I don't know how to recover now. I was gonna say I thought you got a free pass if you got the dunk tank, but Obviously, that's not true. So, um, anyway, uh, happy that um, happy that uh, for everybody who came out for Family Fun Night, uh, we had a great time. We got another one coming up on September eighth. Uh, we're going to be uh, projecting a movie together, and that's going to lead into our series following this one, which is at the movies. We're going to look at uh, some contemporary movies, draw some spiritual implications, and uh, that'll kind of be our back-to-school kickoff there uh, coming up in September. But that's our next series. Let's talk about today. Today we are launching into uh, a new series that we're calling Overlooked, and we're going to draw our attention to what's known as the Minor Prophets. These are 12 books of the Bible that are kind of tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. They're some of the names and stories that we really aren't familiar with, and so a lot of times they get relegated into exactly what we're saying here. They get overlooked. We think maybe they don't quite have the same potential or the same spiritual weight as uh, the other pieces of Scripture. And so today, before we get started, uh, we're going to jump into one specific book. That's going to be our plan for the next six weeks to take one of these minor prophets, one of the books of the Bible, and kind of dig into it uh, each week together. But before we do that, I just want to orient us to give us some background information on what we're going to be talking about for these next six weeks uh, as we look at this first section of minor prophets, and then we're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to come back and do the other six maybe in the spring or next summer. So Here's what you need to know in order to make it through uh, the minor prophets we're going to be talking about. They're called minor prophets because of their size, not their significance or not their importance, right? They're called minor prophets because they're, they're somewhat small books, at least in comparison to what we would call the, the major prophets, right? Isaiah has over 60 chapters in his book. There's Jeremiah who has two books. And so the, the major prophets, as they're known, are, are just larger volumes of prophets 
work. That's not to say that these words aren't significant. It's actually just how they were categorized. So when you think back to how the scriptures were originally relayed, they were written on scrolls. You remember this when Jesus goes to the tabernacle and he takes the scroll to Isaiah. Well, the minor prophets were all just one scroll. So if you were going to read from this collection of writings from these groups, you would take out the scroll that had these 12 books of the Bible, some more, some less, all on one single piece of it. Now, the minor prophets have somewhere between 12 and 14 chapters in the larger volumes, and then there's books that are as small as two, three, and four. Obadiah has one. So when we do Obadiah, it won't even be turned to Obadiah chapter 1 verse 30. It'll just be Obadiah 30, right? That's all there is. It's just the one book there. And so part of the reason why we skip over these, why we gloss over these, is because there's just not much information to them, right? You can flip past them on the way uh, to the New Testament, and your thumb won't even stop as you flip through some of their names. The second problem that we have with the minor prophets is that there's a lot of history that are contained in these. They span some 400 years, some 19 kings, two different kingdoms, one of which collapses in the middle of these writings. And all of that to say that in the course of our studying, in the course of our work, we find ourselves going, man, there's a lot of information there to get caught up on. There's a lot of historical, demographic, background information that makes it hard to connect with. You couple that with their size, and it makes us going, what in the world are we even talking about? What's going on in this history? And how does this relate at all to what the Bible is teaching us and, and perhaps where we're going in our own lives together? There's a lot of history. And on top of that, it's, it's really not good history. It's the history where we're post-David and post-King Solomon, right? When Israel and the kingdom of God is, is kind of in their heyday. And now we see kind of the collapse of both of these empires. We see kind of the, the shadow side of God's faithfulness to his people and it really erodes because of their behavior and some of the things that they've contributed to. And so they're really not a fun look at Israel's history. They're, they're about a lot of destruction. Uh, they're a lot, about a lot of disobedience. And they're about this call from God to be renewed and restored. But that doesn't actually happen in the books that reveal themselves here in these minor prophets. That's actually a foreshadowing to Jesus. And so the years of these history are not only kind of obscure for us, but they're, they're really not fun years to talk about. And again, these aren't the big fun stories of the Old Testament either. They're kind of hidden away in obscurity, which is why they're often overlooked. The last kind of obstacle or key to understanding the minor prophets is that you have to understand that this is prophetic literature. It's prophetic literature. Now, hands if you took prophetic literature in high school, right? Anybody? College? Yeah, see, just not a class. What about the prophetic literature section in Barnes and Noble? Anybody check that out recently? This whole kind of section, this idea is something that A, isn't talked about, B, is unfamiliar, and C, is hard to diagnose, right? Because when you think of a prophetic literature, a prophet, was that that right? Was that prophetic? I don't know what was going on right there. When you think about a prophetic type of literature, right, part of the problem is how do you know if it's true or not? Because the way that you know if a prophet is true, according to scripture and just prophecy 101, right, is like if the stuff that they preach about comes true. 
The problem is that it doesn't come true usually until after they've died, after the kingdom falls, or until Jesus comes in the future. And so it's just this weird category of literature. On top of that, most of it isn't narrative. It's not like a story, but it's actually uh, poetry, right? It's like poem, poems and indentations in your scripture, and, uh, and that makes it somewhat um, allegorical in nature, right? It uses similes and metaphors. I know you took English in high school, so go back to that class. It uses all of these comparisons as ways to highlight the ways in which God is behaving, will behave, and the things that are going to come if things aren't different if things don't change. All of that to say that to dive into this minor prophet section, to dive into the stories that we're going to be talking about, there's quite a few hurdles that we have to our modern ears, our modern sensibilities to really jump into this and to kind of understand what's going on, which is why our, our point for these Sundays together aren't going to be to exhaust the text. Uh, we wouldn't be able to get into each book. We wouldn't be able to do enough. My goal is to give you enough background understanding and then to encourage you, to challenge you to read each book throughout the week until we come back together the next week. So this week, your challenge is going to be to read Hosea. It's 14 chapters. You can read two chapters a day, and, uh, and you can keep up with us on reading that. And so my goal today is just to give you enough information to be able to read Hosea for what it is, to understand it in the context which it was written, and hopefully to draw out some applications for your life. Does that sound good? So glad you're with me this morning. Here we go. You might be going at this point, if these minor prophets are overlooked, number one, if they're not the big stories of the Old Testament, if there's history that gets in the way, if there's culture that gets in the way, if they're prophetic literature, which I don't even know how to tackle, why in the world should we take our time to, to consider these things? Why would we take this moment to kind of dig into these types of books? I've been okay thus far in my life without them. What's, the, what's to be gained by this endeavor? And I would just phrase it to you this way. They present a new way to learn about God and about ourselves. When we read the minor prophets, when we read some of this history that we're unfamiliar with, they, they raise some new questions that force us to come to terms with those answers. They also raise some ancient questions, maybe questions that you've had but not quite phrased in the same way or not quite couched in the same type of illustration, but they allow us an opportunity to hear how the people and family of God have processed through trouble and hardship throughout history and throughout the course of their identity as a nation of the people of God. And so what we have to gain from this is that we can learn something new about how God has acted in the past, about the ways in which he's spoken to people. And hopefully through that, we can learn some answers to the questions that we ourselves have about the scriptures and about who God is is. So whether you're a fully committed follower of Jesus and you recognize and understand that part of following Jesus is understanding the entirety of scripture, or whether you're somewhat skeptical this morning and going, I'm not quite sure where I land on this whole God thing, the minor prophets present a different lens for us to view and to understand and to interpret this God who loves us and who lives for us. So now that we've set the ground rules, we're going to jump into our minor prophets 
prophet for today, which is Hosea. If you want to follow along and didn't bring your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to slip your hand up, and uh, we've got Bibles for you. It might be important for you to follow along simply because of some of the things we're going to point out in the text. So if you raise your hand, uh, looks like Andrew's grabbing Bibles. We're going to be on page 423. If not, I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bible to Hosea. Uh, if you brought your phone, I'll allow you to open your Bible, but don't get distracted by Facebook, okay? Go ahead and turn there, and uh, let's go from our broad context of what minor prophets are. Let's go to a little bit more specific context on the book of Hosea. So the book of Hosea is focused on what's called the northern kingdom. In his writing, he's going to use the term Ephraim or Jacob to be able to describe this kingdom. After David and Solomon kind of established the kingdom of Israel, there comes a division into the northern kingdom, typically Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is typically Judah. And so we find ourselves with a minor prophet, Hosea, who is living in the northern kingdom, who is serving the northern kingdom, and whose prophecies are going to come to impact the northern kingdom. So that's just kind of an orientation for ourselves about this time and place in the world. We know that Hosea was a prophet for right around 38 to 40 years because in verse 1 he lists the number of kings that he served under. Remember, these minor prophets serve about a 400-year stretch of information, about 19 kings, and Hosea is going to serve under about six of those 19 kings. That's because when during his time, his prophecy, probably even during his life, the northern kingdom is under assault from the nation of Assyria. They're putting pressure on them, and eventually the kingdom falls to Assyria in 722 BC or thereabout. And so Hosea is writing at this time where the northern kingdom is really on its last leg, and he has all of these kings who are somewhat obedient or disobedient, and they're trying to save the nation, but Assyria is coming. Coming at them. Being the northern kingdom, uh, the way that it worked in the ancient world is anytime you wanted to go through this stretch of land, east-west wasn't an option. You had the Mediterranean Sea on one side and desert on the other. So that meant that everybody from east and west and north all came through the northern kingdom first. This is why the northern kingdom is the first to fall in history. We'll get more familiar with these terms as we kind of spend our time here uh, over the next couple of weeks. But like I said, there's a lot of history. So as we look at the book of Hosea, I want to highlight the central theme for us. This would kind of be the orienting thought or idea that Hosea is trying to illustrate for us, that God is speaking through Hosea, and really it's a beautiful theme for us today. It's God's faithful love. God's faithful love, his covenant love to his people, to Israel, Judea, and the Jews. And the story of Hosea is an illustration, is an allegory, is a metaphor, is a way in which God is going to try and help us, is going to try and help his people understand his faithful love for them. Now, Hosea can be broken up into three different sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is a lot of the narrative story. It's the part where we're going to spend the most of our time today. Chapters 1 and 3 are the story of Hosea's life, and then the rest of the book is pretty much that prophetic poetry literature that's going to highlight some of the causes and effects of what Israel's doing. So chapters 1 through 3 is the story of Hosea the person, and it's connected to God's love, and we'll get to 
to that here in just a second. The second section would be kind of a cause and effect section. This would be chapters 4 through 11. This is where Hosea is going to draw some connections to say, Israel, you've been following false gods. You've been disobeying the Lord. You've been unfaithful to your commitment. And now because of these actions, these are the resulting things that are going to happen. People are going to come, they're going to attack, the kingdom's going to be destroyed because of your actions, because of the things that you've done. This is the effect that happens because of them. That's chapters 4 through 11. 12 through 14 is a similar prophetic narrative or prophetic tone, but it's more about the history of Israel, about who God is and how he's speaking to these people. And Hosea has some words to say there as well. So, I think think that's everything you need to know about the book of Hosea, and we haven't even opened it yet. How are we doing? Y'all with me? Okay, so now we're going to dive actually into Hosea. Again, we're just going to be able to cover some of the real fragments here. My goal is not to be exhaustive in this, but is to just give you enough to kind of approach the scripture with a lens and an understanding. So as we talk about this being God's faithful love revealed, the beautiful part is that Hosea is a love story fundamentally. It's a love story between God and his people Israel, and it's kind of categorized or contextualized through the love of Hosea to his wonderful wife. And now, as you know, any good love story starts with a marriage. And so that's where Hosea starts. He's going to get married to a beautiful woman with a beautiful name by the name of Gomer. And uh, if your name's Gomer, I'm sorry for you this morning. That's just the way that the text reads. So here we go. We're going to jump in uh, at verse 2. And uh, fair warning, this gets pretty dicey pretty quick. So here we go. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go and marry a promiscuous woman. We'll come back to that term here in just a bit. Have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Debalium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Nobody walking out yet? That's a good thing. Uh, right? We get really dicey really quick there. That word promiscuous is at least what it is in some modern translations. I actually don't know what the Bibles here in the, uh, in the worship center say, but it's been tr- uh, translated adulterous woman. It's also been translated prostitute, which probably conveys a, a little bit of the reality of this term. In all actuality, she may have been enslaved and was in fact forced to be in this type of lifestyle as would have been normal back then. But, but nonetheless, the story starts out with what appears to be a stark command from God about Hosea and about what he's supposed to do, what his life is supposed to look like. This is a bit difficult for our modern ears, is it not? Everybody read that and go, yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? Like, uh, we got some questions that kind of revolve around this. We've got some things that bubble up to the surface. And so here's the long and short of it, right? What God is doing is he's explaining his covenant love, his faithful love through the lens of Israel's unfaithfulness. And he's going to use Hosea's relationship with his wife as a context to understand his type of faithful love. Now, I don't want to lie to you. Scholars are on multiple sides of this issue throughout history. Some people think that this is just a story. It's a narrative. It's something that God is using to tell a story about what it would be like. Other people are staunch on the side of saying, no, Hosea was a real person, Gomer was a real person, this is the real command of the Lord, and they build their story around 
those arguments. Here's what I want to say to you today and to us. Rather than worrying about which pieces of the story are true or made up or what we can prove empirically, because the answer is not much, I'd rather us go to the point of going, what does this do to our understanding of who God is and of who we are in relationship to him. And so for you, if you need to leave it as a story, that's great. If you want to go to a practical, actual, historical attitude, that's fine too. But this is a love story about God and his people. And that love story is illustrated through the context of Hosea and Gomer. And whether or not that's a real situation or a story that's being told, the reality is that it conveys something about the nature of God, about the nature of love, and hopefully is something that we can take away with us. So now that we've smoothed that over a bit, I'm not going to answer it for us, but hopefully we can dissuade that tension just a little bit. Let's move forward here in our story this morning. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Hosea, call him, this is the son that was born to him at the end of verse 3, Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, we might not be out of the woods yet, right? Uh, we're getting a little bit more dicey here. Uh, Dad, where did my name come from? Well, son, the Lord said that he was going to destroy Jezreel, and so I named you Jezreel. That's really weird, Dad. All right, moving on here. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again. Notice that it doesn't say bore him a son or daughter. What the text is implying is that these last two people that are born are actually not Hosea's children. We'll come back to that here in a bit. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord, their God, will save them. We're not done yet. After she had weaned Lohuramah, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Thus says the word of the Lord... Let's go home, huh? Is that enough to, uh, yeah, I'm kind of regretting the series. I don't know about you, but um, what's going on here? How do we interpret what in the world the Lord is saying here? You can maybe understand why some people go, this can't be real. Surely no one would actually do this. Um, but to be a prophet is to be kind of the village crazy person. That's kind of the role in which they survive, the role in which they play. But how do we interpret what God is doing? What's the grander story, the grander piece of what God is doing? He's trying to relate to Israel, to his people, hey, there's been an unfaithfulness that's occurred, and the sons, the outcome, the progeny of that unfaithfulness is the fact that our relationship has changed is the fact that you used to be my people and I used to be your God, but now you serve other religions and other gods. Now you serve yourselves by trying to protect yourselves from other invading armies through alliances and through the strength of your armies and through the strength of your battle. And so the Lord is really drawing quite a dramatic storyline here of going, how do I make you understand what our relationship is? This metaphor is common throughout Scripture. The Lord says, it's like, it's like I'm 
I'm the groom and you're the bride. And we entered into this covenant promise together, but through your unfaithfulness, you broke that covenant promise. And now the results of that broken fellowship are lo ami and lo ruhama, which are not translated to be good things. And the point there being not necessarily between Hosea and Gomer, but that this is the illustration whereby we understand and get to know the heart of God, what he's after. Again, I told you this is a love story, and I would not argue with you if you didn't believe me, but the point here is God is trying to tell us something about who he is and his nature. So we've got a man here, right, who hears God's voice, or at least hears a voice, right? And he, he marries a woman who either will be or is already unfaithful to him. They have three children. The text implies that two of those aren't actually his, and they're all given the worst names on the face of the planet. And each of these is a correlation is a drawing the story upward to the nature and character of how God cares and loves for his people. And here's the reality. Passages and stories like this are the reason that most of us avoid reading the Bible. All God's people said, amen, right? Like, it's one thing for me to be up here talking about it. It's another thing if you're sitting at home in a quiet moment going, okay, Lord, I just want to hear from you, and you pop open to the book of Hosea, and you're like, Lord, I don't have a clue what in the world you're trying to communicate to me, but I don't feel good about it, and uh, I feel like you're a little upset with me, and that's, that's what I got from today's reading, right? And it's passages like these, it's stories like these, it's Old Testament prophetic literature that is so foreign and removed from our understanding that we wind up with one of two things. Either we avoid those scriptures for preference of New Testament, right? Let's skip skipping through this. Let's get to Jesus. I like those stories. I know him a little bit better. And so we just kind of overlook these passages. That's one opportunity that we have as Christians. The other is that people read these stories, read these sections, and, and rather than processing through and seeking to understand it, they simply hold, throw the whole book, the whole religion, the whole God character as archaic and outdated, and they hold up stories like these, and they say, see, this is why I can't believe in a God. This is why I can't believe in somebody that would live this way, that would do these types of things. Again, I'm not going to answer this for us this morning. I simply want to walk us into the tension of what these verses allow us to do. Because so often our faith gets stalled out because we fail to do the hard work of walking through and understanding the implications of a text like this. What does it mean if God really did say this? What does it mean for the nation of Israel if this is how God feels? It gives us a context to understand the next 14 chapters because if you understand God in the terms of Hosea, then you recognize that the emotional prophetic literature that follows is a lot of God feeling like a jilted lover. One who has chosen to love a bride who does not love him in return. And he puts it in this very earthly, very practical context that we can all relate to, that we can all see played out. And he uses it to say, that's what it's like in our relationship, Israel. That's what it's like as I've pursued you and lived for you and attempted to redeem you multiple times over and over again. This is what the Lord is saying through the prophet of Hosea. 
And that's actually why it's worth our time to discuss it together, because we want to answer some of these questions, not corporately, but at least personally and internally. What do we do with some of these passages? And my hope for you as we go throughout the series is, again, to equip you enough to read these passages, read these books of the Bible with a little bit of context, with a little bit of understanding, and to use your discernment and your relationship with God to know and understand how he might be speaking to you, because he's got some things to say and some things to teach us through what we could dismiss as old, archaic, outdated texts. So what do we do with Hosea? What do we do with this story, with this narrative, with this prophet? How do we interpret it? Let me just give us three frameworks to do as you go through your own study this week. The first is this, that Hosea is about God's faithful love, which is revealed through Israel's unfaithfulness. This whole story is a book of contrast. It's a book of comparison. It's a book of going, this is how you behave, and this is how I wish that you would behave. And he puts it in the context of a marriage relationship so that we would understand how we've behaved, how Israel has behaved, and how that makes God feel, how that makes him in the sense of it being a marriage type of relationship. So Israel's unfaithfulness, the way in which they've failed to hold up their end of the bargain is what's illustrated through Hosea and Gomer's relationship. The reason why I believe God has Hosea deliver this message is because he's familiar with it. He's lived day in and day out living with a people who haven't returned his love. He raises children who aren't his own. And he, when Hosea comes to God and says, I don't know how to live with a person who doesn't love me back, God says, I do. We've got a couple thousand years of history with that. Let me show you and teach you what it's like to love someone who doesn't love you back. See, God says, I created these people for relationship with me, and I provided them space and time for them to receive my love and hopefully to love me in return. But all they did was disobey me. All they did was break fellowship and break my covenant. They trampled on my gifts and my blessings. And God says, I had to reconcile and to deal with the implications of my love for them. And rather than reading verse 2 as God's command to Hosea, perhaps it was simply the revelation of Hosea's life lived out that the hell on earth of living with an unfaithful spouse can be. And Hosea is realizing and learning that God is with him all along, that God is not far from him in that story. Because in learning to love Gomer, his unfaithful wife, Hosea learned how God loved his people. And once he learned that lesson, God had equipped him to teach it to the nation of Israel, to the people who are living that way currently. Not only that, but he teaches it to us some 2,500 years later. God's faithfulness is communicated through this story of unfaithfulness so that it actually connects and resonates with us. How do we love someone who doesn't love us back? Hosea has an answer for us from God's perspective. Frame number two, God's unfailing love is displayed through the reconciliation of Hosea and his wife. The reconciliation, here's why, because in chapter 3, we have a whole nother layer to this story. We're going to pick up in verse 1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, so they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. 
So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a likhef of barley. You guys know what a lithic of barley is, right? Like that makes sense to you. What's going on here, right? So at some point, they get married. They're in a relationship together, whether, whether Gomer was before in adultery, whether she was after, whether it happened in the course of their marriage. Nonetheless, there's the initial redemption. There's the breaking of fellowship that happens repeatedly based on our reading of the text. And then there's a return back to her. There's a reconciliation that happens. There is a purchased again that happens, whether or not she was redeemed in the first place in the same manner and fashion. The, the point of this is simply that God is saying, this is again like my relationship with Israel, that I've redeemed her multiple times, that I've come to her multiple different times for a sense of reconciliation. Chapter 2, the in-between is this prophetic poetry, which you can tell by the indentations in your Bible text, right? If you read, just read the slides, you miss some of the allegory and the beautiful poetry that's written into these stories. But the conclusion for why God and why ultimately Hosea is reconciled to their respective brides is in verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19, which says that it's because of God's righteousness, his justice, his love, compassion, and faithfulness, which is why this story is so amazing to me personally. Listen, God says the reason that he tolerates and that he loves Israel has nothing to do with them. He says, look, none of my love that's displayed for my people is based on their actions at all. He says, I know who they are. I, I knew from the start that they would be unfaithful. And the implication is that Hosea knew from the start that Gomer would be unfaithful. He says, I know that they're not going to be able to uphold the covenants. I know that they're not going to be able to do those things. But the point for me is that I love them because of who I am. It's because of my righteousness. It's because of my justice. It's because of my unfailing and faithful love for them that they are my people. In other words, it has nothing to do with their actions. It doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter how obedient they are. It doesn't matter which rules they follow and which rules they break. They're simply my people. They're simply my beloved. They're simply my bride. How does this story come about? It's because he says the same thing to Gomer. Does Hosea redeem Gomer because she's learned her lesson? Nope. So Hosea redeem her because she's finally been in there long enough and she deserves a second chance? Nope. Text doesn't say that. Does he redeem her because this is just what godly people do? Nope, it doesn't say that. It says, because of my righteousness and my unfailing love, I've reconciled and redeemed. And this to me is the most beautiful part of this whole story. God's basic command to Hosea, we get hung up on that adultery, that promiscuity, whatever word we want to put there. But if we would just stop the sentence short and say, God commanded Hosea to love Gomer, period to love his wife, period. Now we get at the heart and the context of what this book is all about. God is trying to display his covenantal love for his people, and love is based on the action of the giver, not on the action of the recipient. Love is based on who we are as a people, not on who the other person is. Here's where it starts to get a little personal. You have people in your life that you love? makes me really sad. I feel so badly for you guys. I have people in my life that I love. I hope you do too. So here's the deal. When it comes to our loving relationships with the people in our life, do you find yourself loving them irregardless of their actions at all times? You don't, 
right? I'm cheating, I know you, right? Because I know me, right? The answer is no, my love is often conditional. If you do this, then I'll respond accordingly. If you behave in such a way, if you honor the commitment, if you honor our marriage, if you honor our relationship, if my sons obey me, then the resulting action is these good things that come across. Often my love is not unconditional. Often my love is very, very conditional. We find ourselves playing tit for tat in our relationships. We find ourselves going, if you will, then I will. And if you won't, then I won't. And the message of Hosea, the message of God's faithful love, is that what love actually looks like is it's based on who we are as a people and has no consideration for how the other person behaves. Chances are when you got married, you made a vow that said something to the effect of, I vow to love you whether richer or poorer in sickness or in health and forsaking all others, devoting myself to you as long as we both shall live. Here's what's interesting. What you're saying in those vows, in those places is my love for you is based on my decision, not on your actions. My love for you, the decision, the vow that I make today is about my character, is about my choices, is about who I am as a person, who I am as a follower of God, who I am in this world today. My love for you is not conditional on whether we become richer or poorer, whether you are sick, whether you are healthy. My love for you is not contingent on whether or not you honor this vow or not. Not true in practice but true in the sentiment that we express. And the reality of what Hosea, what God is trying to reveal here, is to say this is what faithful love looks like. It looks like an author of that love who expresses it regardless of the person on the other side. It's this type of love that God displays for us in the person of Jesus. It's what he displays to the people of Israel. It's what Hosea displays to his unfaithful wife, Gomer. And the translation for us today is this is the type of love that you are to live in, to experience, and to live out as a devoted Christ follower and follower of God. We're to love people regardless of their actions to us, regardless of how they treat us. We love because of who we are, because of who God is, and God wants to transform us into that space and into those people. This is a message that the world desperately needs to hear. It's not a new message, it's 2,500 years old, but the reality is that too often our love from our vows gets contextualized into the way that the world loves, which is a scorecard, which is so long as it's fair, then I'll act fairly. So long as it's even, then I'll act evenly. But the love that God displays for us is anything but even, is anything but fair. The call to us as his followers is to be anything but fair in the way that we love the people in our life. Spouse, children, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, pick a category. Is your love conditional? Does it find places whereby we don't do those types of things, where we find ourselves keeping a score card? The message from 2,500 years ago is to say God doesn't operate like that. God buried the scorecard. He reflects, there's a couple of verses in here that literally talk about Jesus being dead for two or three days. I hope as you read them this week that you stumble upon them together because the, the final thing about Hosea 
is that in the midst of this adultery and unfaithfulness and the really yucky conversation that we've been having so far, so Hosea has a message of hope. Hosea has a message to say, I know that this love doesn't quite balance out, but the good news is that you have timing and opportunity for a good ending to the story. God says, my love isn't going to change based on your actions, which gives you a hope and a future, Israel, even though destruction is at your doorstep. Hosea can say to Gomer, I know that you've been unfaithful, but I'm going to reconcile you again and again and again because our relationship is based on my covenantal promise to you, irregardless of your actions. And it speaks to us as believers in this room or as God-fearers and followers to say there is a hope for the future. There is a redemption of love that we can all take and carry with us. This is why I love the story of Hosea. Because God's faithful love transforms his very earthly, very natural understanding of the way that love ought to operate, and it changes it into something way better. Let's get to some personal application today if you're not already there with me. How does God's faithful love transform the way that you love others? How does God's faithful love transform the way that you love others? Hopefully, as you read Hosea, that is a central question that you can carry with you to go, what does the text say, and how do I interpret that in light of who I believe God to be, and of who I am in the world, and the significant relationships that I have? God, I want my love to look more like your love. Can you transform me into that place? Will you yet let your love be radically changed to become more like God's love? Or are you stuck emulating what's on TV, what's in the culture around us? If you're going, I'll do if you will, and if you won't, then I won't. Let me tell you, that's one way to live in a shared household. It's no way to live. It's no way to have a marriage. It's no way to be in love for the rest of of your life. That's true for marriage, it's true for children, it's true for friends and relationships, and Hosea has some truth to speak in to us. We're running out of time, so I don't have time to get to the hope pieces. Here's what I want you to do. As you read this week, I want you to post on your social media the hopeful verses that you find in Hosea. It's at the end of every one of those sections that I gave you. It's at the end of every single one of those pieces. And as you read this week, my hope, my prayer, my challenge for you is that in the midst of this big, yucky, icky story that's hard culturally and it's hard over time to understand, to go, okay, where is the nugget of hope in the midst of this? That's my challenge for you today. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. We'll sing one more song quick here before we're done. And, uh, and let me just pray for you in this way. Would you bow your heads with me? As we sing one last song, here's, here's my question for you. Where do you need to learn more about this kind of transformational love? About this kind of love that doesn't can hinge or contend with others' actions? Where do you need to learn to love because of who you are, not because of what others have done to you? Where's that relationship, where's the person where you need to embrace and to find some attitude, some action of this version of God's faithful love poured out for you? It's been displayed in scripture. My hope and my challenge is that as you read it, you would find it. Heavenly Father, would you go with us on this journey? Would you teach us about your unfailing love? And as we learn about the ways in which you love radically and with no regards to our actions, God, would you in turn teach us to love in a similar capacity? 
Would you give us your spirit and your strength to do this? Would you help us to be your people and to carry on your message forward? Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. All God's kids said.